Welcome to the For Real For Real podcast, where we share our realities and perspectives on what's going on in the world of pop culture, sports, relationships, society, and much, much more. All while keeping it real and getting into the shits, as we like to say. This is your boy, Big Easy. I'm Jeff Brooks, the Renaissance Man. And they call me T-Mac, but my mom calls me Trevor. Let's get into it. Welcome back, my friends. It is a outstanding week. Why is it outstanding, you might ask? Because once again, it has been proven that the New York Knickerbockers are the most irrelevant sports team in New York City. How did that happen? Well, the nail in the coffin has been Hall of Famer Steve Nash taking the job as head coach for the premier New York City basketball team, the Brooklyn Nets, everybody. It's not every day that Jeff gets to troll us. Even though, Jeff, you're like a resident, just like LeBron James fan. So, like, wherever LeBron James go, that's where your fandom goes. We here, as Knicks fans, we've had a bad 20 years. But, listen, Brooklyn still hasn't done anything. They haven't won anything. It's cool. They have Kyrie Irving. Uh, KD, okay, that's something worth talking about. But, again, still hasn't even played for them. And Steve Nash, I mean, you know, like, Cool. Continue to hire, you know, like your white privileged, you know, Hall of Fame, all-star point guards. Well, you got the number eight pick, so that's something to brag about. Can we talk about how the New York Knickerbockers have been living in luxury high-rise skyscrapers, rent-free in the heads of sports fans across the globe for years, we haven't done anything. We haven't hurt anybody. We haven't stolen anybody's pick, player, coach, nothing. We haven't been relevant in 20-some-odd years, but people love to kind of dig on us. So props to you, Jeff, for kind of running that into the ground and trying to drive that knife, man. But, I mean, we're, we're good over here, man. We have no feelings at this point, man. The team sucks. We've been sucking. So it's just another day, man. But let's focus on that other team which people don't even really acknowledge as a New York team because we know how trash they were when they were in New Jersey, man. The Brooklyn Nets, they got a coach. They made a move kind of out the blue, like you said, bringing on Steve Nash. And the most interesting part of the signing was kind of not just the surprise, but, you know, how he more or less kind of leapfrogged because Steve Nash didn't really work his way up the totem pole in the traditional way that, you know, you kind of rise to the coaching ranks. And it was interesting here in his press conference that he made what was a, a pretty bold statement. And we'll play that right now. Well, I've, I have benefited from white privilege. You know, our, our society has a lot of ground to make up. I'm not saying that this position uh, was a, was a factor as, as far as white privilege being a factor in this position, but like, I think as, as white people, we have to understand like, that we are served a privilege and a benefit by the color of our skin and our communities. And we have a long way to go to, to find equality and, and social and racial justice. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I hope that I'm a great ally to that cause. Um, this is something that Clara and Josai have, have really made an incredible gesture to help within our organization, but also in our communities to to help stem the gap in racial injustice. And so I'm very sensitive to, to the cause and the goal. Um, you know, I, 
know, I'm not sure that this is an example that purely fits uh, that conversation. But I'm, but I, I own it, and I understand why that's important to talk about it, and that we do need more diversity, more opportunity for African American coaches and staff in all capacities. You know, this league was built uh, through African American players and stars that have made this, you know, one of the greatest entertainment industries, uh, businesses, and sports in the world. So that's it's really important that we we continue to come together and fight. I think at the league level. Commissioner Silver has been incredible at embracing, you know, the cause and the fight for, for equality. So I want to be here to fight for that as well. Uh, it's, it's interesting being such a supporter and ally of all of that, that need for, for equality to be put in the middle of it in a sense, because I, you know, it is something that is near and dear to my heart, but I accept it. I want to be a part of the conversation. And frankly, I want to be a part of change going forward. Yes. What he said is, Coming out very clearly. It's what Stephen A. Smith and, and plenty of other Twitter folks kind of called him out on. He kind of owned it. He said, I have benefited from white privilege. What do you guys think about that? Well, first, shout out to Steve Nash, you know, for many reasons. A Hall of Fame basketball player, truly innovative the way he played the sport, introduced a running gun type of style that the league has yet to see at that point. But more respect to him and his humanity and his humility to come about and to admit that, you know, publicly, because most people in this position wouldn't have that humility to actually say that. What to take from that? I mean, can you even be looked at in a bad way for saying that? I think it actually is only beneficial for him to admit that, because if he denies what white privilege is or that it played a role into it, even if it didn't in this point, it seems like he might be oblivious. But you admit it, you own it, you put it out on front street, you look like you're above the pettiness. So I think it was very strategic um, for him to come out very quickly and admit that that could be a possibility, or in his case, is a possibility, on why the process was much shorter for him. To Steve Nash's credit, other athletes who never had coaching experience have also jumped into big roles. They happen to be black, like a Derek Fisher, like a Jason Kidd. Those who were actually floor generals who were outstanding point guards in their times and were championship level point guards and champions. Steve Nash is not a champion, but they have been held in high regard. But they also got their shot before other people who might have been waiting. So there's much to be said. I mean, the whole white privilege thing could be a generalization, but ultimately we know that if not for this case, that's typically been the case in a lot of different areas. And we definitely could speak to Mark Jackson and other coaches who have been fired after successful season. Uh, the Raptors last coach before Nick Nurse uh, was a part of that. So yeah, I think it could be a large possibility, but it, it's inconclusive at this point. You know, one of the other benefits of, you know, white privilege is also when you take a, a high paying, high ranking job, that you have a PR company that helps you answer questions and one of the things that that PR company probably said was, you know what, go ahead and say, yeah, you know what, I got this because of white privilege. It allows you to take ownership of something, right? And here's the thing. I think, although, like, you know, I'm not going to trash talk Steve Nash. I think, obviously, Hall of Fame point guard obviously was almost like, you know, the, what the Showtime Lakers were is what he was doing in Phoenix and, you know, for a lot of his career. So in terms of playing basketball, like, he has all the credentials in the world. But he's never coached anywhere. And for all we know, like, it's not like he was pining to, right? They searched for him. They enticed him. They spoke to him. So you know how hard it is for 
black coaches to get recognized. And that's not just in the NBA, just in, in general, right? When there are black candidates, they get vetted to the nth degree. And someone like Steve Nash, and we can talk about other sports, you know, people got up in arms a little bit. Stephen A. Smith, I remember last year, kept talking about Matt LaFleur and getting the like the Packers job or whatever, right? And Jeff referenced the fact that we've had black coaches get, get fired. I mean, you know, Dwayne Casey was the, the coach we were referencing that got fired in Toronto and got replaced with, you know, a white coach the next season. Hell, in this season, Nate McMillan got fired after leading the Indiana Pacers to the playoffs and having a successful, like, four-year run where he took them to the playoffs basically every single year. And the only reason, like, they didn't advance is because they had crazy freak injuries, basically, right before every playoff series, right? And, you know, lost their job. What we kind of always see is, A, there's either a new white, young star that people want to bring into, like, their leagues, or it's always recycled amongst the same kind of, like, older white coaches, Right. Black, black coaches don't get that same luxury. They ultimately get one opportunity, and if they're lucky, two opportunities. So we referenced Mark Jackson. Mark Jackson was the guy who essentially built a dynasty and got let go right before things were really going to pop. And interestingly enough, got replaced by another white coach that had no coaching experience. These things always happen. And unfortunately, it looks like no matter how much ground coaches feel like they're making up, there's still a huge gap. It's unfortunate that, you know, we, we speak on someone like Steve Nash, who, again, great caliber player, probably going to be a decent enough NBA coach, but again, did not have to go through the trials and tribulations, didn't have to do the things that other people did, who might have to coach high school basketball, might have to go to a shitty college program, might have to really do some of all the, the little things. And look what he's inheriting as well. You know, he's inheriting probably the second best player in the league and all-time great championship point guard. So not only do they get these opportunities to succeed, but they are succeeding with all the pieces lined up. And all you have to do is pretty much not mess it up. Yeah, I think that's the part that's important to call out what you just did, Jeff, is that what happened for Steve Nash, and I don't even want to say what happened for him because I, I do think that he – earned the job, whether he was an assistant coach or anything before that to me is, is a little bit irrelevant. So he was, to your point, um, Sam, recruited to take on this role. But what's kind of created, and I'll even use the word envy, a bit of envy or distaste in the fact that he kind of can essentially come off the street and step into this top job at the level he's at is that this is a championship ready team. And four guys, like even when Steve Kerr kind of took on that job from Golden State, like they were, I think they had maybe made the first round or second round, players were young. And even before with Mark Jackson kind of taking that role, like you normally, if you're going to go from a player to a coach, you're going to take on a team that's kind of on the rise, a team that's on the build. And they want you at that younger age because they think you're going to be able to relate to these young guys and you're fresh out the league. So you're kind of like a veteran kind of arm for them to lean on or shoulder rather. And that's a so I think 
part of that is what's happening here and that Steve Nash isn't super old. He actually played in the league, I think, while Kyrie was in and definitely while KD was in. So like there's familiarity there in respect of him as a player. And then you kind of know what he did in his time in the league, earning two MVPs, kind of reinventing the game a little bit with D'Antoni to kind of push that running gun back to the forefront of how the league is played today with the seven second offense. So I think he's earned the right to take this title, The but to bring it full circle, the fair question is, why does he get this job? Why is he able to step into what probably would have been the most coveted job uh, available, the job opening for head coaches in the NBA this season? Why does this guy get to come off the street? And we don't even know if they interviewed or, or considered anyone else when there are folks like a Mark Jackson kind of sitting out there bring it back to my Knicks, like a Mike Woodson, who's now taking the assistant job with the Knicks. Tyron Liu, who has a relationship with Kyrie Irving, who's won a championship before. Yeah, I think Eric Snow is out there. I think Emi Adoka is out there with the Sixers. I'm running out of names, but there are uh, Sam Cassell. There's a bunch of guys. I'm um, Patrick Ewan, who again coming back to the Knicks, who's been grinding, grinding for years, and his assistant, and then kind of took a step over to Georgetown in the college ranks. There are these guys who have been grooming and preparing themselves for a job like this who didn't even get so much as a look. And that's where people are like, hey, what's up? In addition to that, too, it also just goes back to the black athlete. I'm pretty sure, and from what I understand, KD and um, Kyrie have lobbied for Mark Jackson to take that Brooklyn position. And, you know, a lot of times star athletes are considered, but in this case, they simply weren't. They had their mindset on Steve Nash, and that's what we got. What I'd say is I think what they've tried to like force feed us is Steve Nash has a little bit of a relationship with KD because he was a consultant for the Golden State Warriors and like a handful of times they might have worked out together. So that's enough to get you, again, the most coveted job when we named a bunch of different, a whole bunch of different candidates who have won coach of the year have led teams to NBA finals, have won NBA finals, who were, may not have been the caliber of player that Steve Nash was, but were all-stars or perennial all-stars in their own right, it doesn't feel right. Like, ultimately, what happens is we do get into a place, like I said, the NBA is constantly, like, recycling the same kind of, like, old white coach. And there are less and less opportunities for black coaches and they only get when they do get the opportunity they get it one time and if they get a second one it comes years and years down the road well i think it's just a matter of where we see whiteness as a society i think that society is conditioned to see certain looking people in certain positions so for your typical american when you think of quarterback you're not thinking Lamar Jackson or Deshaun Watson, you're thinking Tom Brady, you're thinking Peyton Manning. It's made by that as this, by design. Um, it might be a reason why someone like a Dak Prescott, who seems to be a phenomenal young man after his you know minor mistake in, in college getting you know knocked out and whatnot, you know he hasn't gotten a lucrative contract offer. And many people say that the fan base just don't see Dak Prescott as their leading quarterback. And why is that the case? He certainly produces like a all-star caliber, a Pro Bowl caliber quarterback. His numbers are pretty consistent. He works greatly with what he has, but we just don't see a black person being labeled as a quarterback. And the same thing goes for a head coach, a a leader amongst men. And from the American vantage point, always is a white male. I think that for the Brooklyn Nets trying to truly establish a culture, they didn't go counterculture 
like the Clippers did. They're actually trying to you know, stay more traditional and not rock the boat too much. And they're bringing in a Steve Nash who they thought would be received very warmly. And, you know, he, he has. And like I said, it could really be how he legitimately feels being a Canadian. Uh, I think that's an important point to, to make that he might very well believe, you know, in the aspect of white privilege. But for them, I think it's a move where they feel like they rocked the boat a little bit, but he's still, at the end of the day, a white person leading. The other thing I'll add, so like, you know, we brought up people like Derek Fisher or, or Jason Kidd. Jason Kidd at least had a prior relationship with the Nets. So like, ultimately, he played for them. He was, you could arguably, if not the greatest Nets player ever. I mean, it could be Julius Serving, you know, like it really, although he was more the ABA than NBA, whatever. But either way, like, Jason Kidd brought that team to two NBA finals. He had a relationship with the majority of the people in that building, right? That made sense. Derek Fisher, again, had a relationship with Phil Jackson. May not have played with the Knicks, but played under Phil Jackson for, I don't know, 12 of his 15 years in the league, whatever the number might be, right? That part makes sense. Steve Nash has no real relationship with the Nets. He doesn't. Although, like I said, they tried to highlight the fact that he might have had this small relationship with Kevin Durant. The fact of the matter is, we know that this hiring kind of came out of nowhere. We know that, yes, there was, although we can argue, yes, they wanted to rock the bow and think outside the box a little bit. And maybe it's like bringing in Steve Nash can be the same kind of joke that bringing in Steve Kerr might have been, right? But again, do we even know if they were really like interviewing some of like these other higher profile coaches with experience? Again, some guys who have like championship rings on the table. That would be my question. I'm sure they had a short list of backup options. We may never know if they actually spoke to anyone or really did any true kind of interviewing for them. But I mean, I'll say if you can get Steve Nash, I think it's a smart hire. And I think if I'm running that front office, regardless of how it looks, you look at that roster, right? And you've got, so you've got KD as your best player, but your next three best players are ball dominant guards, you know, Kyrie, Karis Levert, Spencer Dinwiddie. So if you have a guy who's been one of the top, say 10 players of all time at that position and he can lead your team, you're probably in a good shape to kind of go after that guy if he's going to say yes. I wouldn't fault them for making the call. Like I think Stephen A said this as well. Like I think Steve Nash is kind of thrust into a position based on circumstance where we are calling this white privilege. But I don't want that to take away from the fact that Steve Nash probably is rightfully deserving of this of this role and this position. And that kind of, again, opens up the larger question of, of where we are with this episode. Based on what though? Like, why do we think he's so qualified? Two-time MVP. I don't know how many all-stars. Got. Magic Johnson was a terrible NBA coach. But that doesn't mean Magic didn't get a job without being an assistant coach either, right? And I would also say that people who had similar experience to Steve Nash also had some coaching success as well. Right. Like a Jason Kidd and the style of play is very similar in a sense, to a point to where I think that a Jason Kidd is less naturally talented than a Magic Johnson. The same thing goes for a Steve Nash. I don't think, again, if a guy like Derek Fisher can come off the ground and, and get a job, I don't think there's any reason to doubt why, why Jason Kidd or, to our main point, why Steve Nash is deserving of the title he got. To me, like I said, it's not a question of was he qualified I think it's just the the matter of circumstance and the level of role that he's stepping into just opens that up to like, if 
this was a black player coming out of the league who who hadn't kind of worked his way up the ranks, would he get a look at this job? And that's the question of really what is white privilege? White privilege in this case for Steve Nash ultimately comes down to that, you know, he wasn't ignored because he was white. Like his whiteness certainly wasn't working against him. There's really not much affirmative action when it comes down to uh, sport tires. I think it's very important to establish that, you know, white privilege doesn't necessarily mean that you um, have an advantage. It just means that you don't have a disadvantage because of your whiteness. And speaking of that, and that's what kind of brings us again to our topic for today. So we actually took some time to have a conversation with a young man who feels very strongly about, you know, the benefits of, of white privilege and kind of how that's impacted him and driven him to where he is today in his life. So we had a great conversation that we recorded a couple of weeks back that we'd love for you all to check out and, uh, and dive in a little bit further. Yeah, so it was our honor to bring on a gentleman by the name of Alexander DeVoe, who currently right now is a human resource professional at Rutgers University. And um, his story for many people who have lived the life that he lived might be unlikely, but he certainly speaks a great deal and, and it has a testament on how his whiteness may have secured the bag for him. So shout out to Alex, who is doing a lot of positive things in um, many different spaces, but more importantly, enlightening the masses about the realities of the world and the climate that we're currently experiencing. Make the mistake in this podcast to speak about issues um, concerning other demographics and not bringing people on as a reference point. I thought it would be a good faith and good effort if we're going to speak about white privilege and we're going to speak about the realities of or the, the mindset and the philosophy of a white person in this culture that we currently have right now, um, in this point in society, it, it would be in our best interest to bring somebody from that demographic. So Alex DeVoe, I would love for you to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you come from, and your story. And one, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me, Jeff, Trevor, Sam. Like Jeff said, we weren't always friends, but it's just an example of growth as human beings that now at this old age of 35, we're able to connect and really bridge communities and try to make a lot of positive things happen in the world. Alice Sucker punched me in the boys' bathroom. Sucker punched. Didn't even have the respect <laughs> enough to ask him for the fair one. And those are the type of mistakes that you make at that age, 16, 17. 17 years old, I did that. I committed armed robberies. I could have been Kyle Rittenhouse at 17. Fortunately for me, I committed armed robberies, and I did almost nine years in prison. Now, how could somebody say fortunate to do nine years in prison? Well, like I just said, I could have been Kyle Rittenhouse, a 17-year-old person who fell into the belief by whoever is surrounding him, his mom that drove him with an illegal firearm to another state, and a day later, he's arrested for the murder of two people. That's a 17-year-old life loss, lost, and now two victims who we'll never see again. So you're speaking about the perspective of a 17-year-old and someone who was a lost cause. Absolutely. So before we kind of dive in into the whole situation going on in Wisconsin, you know, obviously people are already aware that you did spend nine years in prison. Where are you currently right now? Like, how does the life of Alex DeVoe appear in 2020? Like, you now we can talk about how you got there, but I, I'm just curious to know what you're currently doing. And then we can kind of get to how you made it to that point. Absolutely. 2020, I'm 35 years old, partner, two kids, 16 and 12, that I'm raising in this difficult world of race relations and just so many 
conflicting beliefs that people have. It, I work at Rutgers University. I graduated from there after prison. So high school, prison, college, college graduate. Now I work there. And I try to invest a lot of my time into things like this, trying to have a positive voice that talks about the issues that we see in different social media outlets, media outlets, about what white privilege is. I mean, I did nine years in prison and I have no fear to go anywhere in this country based on my skin. No cop will stop me. Nobody will deny me anything. And the subject of white privilege turns so many white people off. So I just want to have a voice that reaches white people to not be so defensive and not just refuse what people are trying to explain to them. So that's what I'm hoping to do today with you guys. You're the first one to admit that, you know, you made some pretty bad decisions growing up. What drove you to rob a gas station? I mean, you know, one would say that we came from a city that, you know, obviously it's it's a city, you know, and you can definitely fall into um, some bad situations, but there's definitely exposure to better opportunities. So why did you go down that particular path when you were very close to graduating and may have had opportunities to start your life off and on the same path and, and get a nine-year head start on where you're at right now? We come from Rawway, New Jersey, a place where it's not a lot of crime, not a lot of gang activity, more opportunity than not, which is why it has allowed me to have so much compassion and empathy for other people, for every person in life, because those decisions that I made were just based off what was inside of me. Even this many years later, people said, well, what drove you to do that? Did you have a drug addiction? Did you have this? No, I thought I was smart enough to commit crime and get away with it for money that I spent on materialistic things. And it cost me almost nine years of my life, which is why now I try to tell kids, don't think you're smart enough to get away with anything. Just assume you're going to get caught and it'll help you to not make those bad decisions. Robbery, violence, just to get money is never the way to go. Like you said, I was accepted to college. I was about to start college in the fall. Instead, I went to prison. The thing that helped me get through all those years of prison, though, was never feeling bad for myself. I knew the mistakes that I made. I knew the opportunities that I squandered, and I never felt bad for myself. The only people I felt bad for were those whose lives I negatively affected, my own family, my friends that I dragged into it, and any victims that were involved. And for me, that's the key to life. Don't feel bad for yourself or your actions. Feel bad for the people who you cause destruction to own up to it and it'll help you live. Alex, you, uh, when you open, and again, thank you for joining us on the show today. When you open, you said that you've got a, I think you said you have a daughter that's 16, right? Is that what you said? Yep. So I'm just doing the math in my head now. So is that a child you conceived right before you went in? So when I use the word daughter, I mean it more than blood could it ever be. So okay. she's my partner's son and daughter, but I met them when they were four and eight years old. So now they're 12 and 16. So we're all okay. family. Oh, no, so that's, no, that's great, too. I was just curious to know, like, at what point in, because, you know, you go into the system and, you know, they say the system is meant to rehabilitate, but they don't really make a concerted effort to do so. So I was curious to know, like, at what point in your time did you kind of say this isn't the path for me and decide that you wanted to do something else with your life when you came out? Well, thankfully for me, day one, because like Jeff said, we're from a place where those crimes don't even happen. I never saw any of that around me. I didn't have anybody leading me in that direction. Those are the decisions I made. I wasn't a gangster. I wasn't a criminal. Like, like Jeff said, I didn't even offer to shoot him the fair one. I just snuck him. And then 
we went from there. So I knew that whatever was inside me at that time, it was easy enough to get out of me. And I knew that no matter how much time I did, four years, six years, 10 years, I had a family to go back to, a roof over my head. And that's the point is that a lot of young people, they don't have that. They come from way worse circumstances than I come from. And they're not given any rehabilitation or any assistance while in prison. And then they're just thrown back out into inner cities and told to figure it out. And that that's what's wrong with the system is you're not helping these kids in youth correctional facilities or prisons prepare themselves to not be criminals. And the reason is that's the game plan. You need people to go to prison. You need people in the system for all these businesses and people to make money. So the thought of rehabilitation, that went out a long time ago. They're just housing young black and brown people to make money, make profit. I was in a halfway house in Newark. Those beds had to be full all the time in order for the contract to work out, in order for that halfway house to make money. So what happens if not enough people are committing crime? Well, we have to get people in there somehow. So we lock people up for lesser offenses, which is why we see so many people still locked up for marijuana offenses when it should be legal all over the country. And when white people turn a blind eye on all of these systemic issues, that's why it's just a revolving door of racist systems that we're trying to fight. So Alex, when you went into prison, I guess you were 18 years old, you're white, you're from Rawway, um, and I guess you went to Union County, if I'm not mistaken, or mm-hmm. like, how were you received by the COs and how were you received by the prison population? When you're 18 and you go to the county, it's, you got guys in there that are career in and out of the county. Drug addicts, you know, four people sleeping on the floor. You're treated with respect, though. You're a kid. A lot of people try to give you words of advice. COs, since it is a county thing, you're from Rawway, they're from Elizabeth, they might be from Rawway, there was a CO in there from Rawway. And they just pull you to the side and just honestly try to keep your head up because they know what you're facing. They know your charges. So county is the the scariest time because you're not yet to be sentenced and you always just have hope like, oh, maybe I'll only get two years. Maybe I'll only get four years. Then when you leave there and you go down to state prison, it's a completely different ball game. But New Jersey is not like Louisiana and California. I was able to do my time minding my business, treating people around me with respect and not having any issues, not having to be a gang member, not having to choose a group to, to be close to. And I give myself a lot of credit, but that's just the person that I've always been from a young age until now. I can mix with anybody anywhere. And I think you know that, like growing yeah, up. For sure. That, that's just how we grew up. Black, white, Hispanic, we all mess with each other. And in prison, for me, it was no different. I seen white guys become bloods, white guys become crips, white guys become Muslim and not really be into the religion. But for me, from my experience, I was blessed, to be totally honest. So going back to, you know, one of the questions that Trevor was alluding to when you talked about, basically, like, how were you able to even identify any resources? Because very soon, like, you realize this ain't the path for me. I don't want to do this forever, right? But, you know, at the same time, you are in prison. Resources are pretty limited, right? So it's like, how do you go about seeking the things that you might need so that when you walk out of there, you never go back? To be completely honest, even me, I wasn't introduced to any resources in prison about how to get to that next level. I was fortunate that when I was in the halfway house, there was a program that was started years before where 
convicted felons could go to college through Essex County College and then go to Rutgers University. I got really lucky that I made a decision just talking to this one guy that was in the halfway house who was going to Rutgers. He said, you, you have to do this. I started taking college classes through Essex County, riding the buses of Newark, walking the streets of Newark, right down Freeland Heisen, which has allowed me to have this perspective to know that all these young black guys that you see in, with gang violence or going in and out of prison, they don't want that. And they're capable of way more than that. We see it happen to them because of the environments that they're raised in. I've met plenty of people, plenty of young black males, even older black males who have so much talent. But like you said, they don't have any resources around them that's guiding them in the right direction. They have just as much intelligence and work ethic and talent than any white people I've met. But life is about resources and opportunity in inner cities, Newark, Camden, Patterson, even Atlantic City, they're just not there. And that's why I can't affiliate myself with any side, right? Everything is a side in this world, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative. I've not met a group of people that is doing right by black people in this country. So until I meet that group of people that are really going to the correct lengths to show that gang violence and black on black crime is not the fault of those committing these acts, then I can't be for any group of people in politics, at least. So you and I had a conversation offline and we were just talking about just like our thoughts for the future. So my question to you, Alex, is how do we fix these issues? And do you see it realistically getting better in our lifetime? I've always been an optimist. And because of these last few years of events, I've become far more pessimistic. Thankfully, having conversations with people like you and other people, I'm trying to gain that positivity back and to know that it's going to be a long uphill battle, but that maybe at the end of our lifetime, we can see some progress. For me, it starts with these slogans and these one-liners, right? Slogans are meant for TV commercials and, and, and making money. So they turn Black Lives Matter into a slogan and then just say that they're violent and neat and this and that. They turn white privilege into a slogan that there's no sentences or conversation that come after you say that to somebody. So I always approach people, white people in particular, by letting them know like, if you are racist or people call you racist but you don't feel you are, I can't get upset at you. I would never get upset at you. We are what we grow up around, what is taught to us. You think Kyle Rittenhouse, a 17-year-old, is who he is just because that's just how he woke up that day? No, who knows what it, his mom drove him there. So who knows what his mom was telling him? Any groups that he was in on Facebook and online. If you look at social media, so many young kids who aren't being watched by their parents are in a lot of groups where sex offenders are accessing them, where white supremacists are accessing them. So lack of parenting in 2020 is what's really uh, elevating a lot of what we see. So to answer your question more specifically, it starts by telling a white person, listen, white privilege is a real thing. And although you're from a working middle-class family and you have bills to pay and you have student loan debt to pay, you don't feel white privilege applies to you because you go through these struggles. This is what it really means. It's just the color of your skin stops you from being harassed. It stops you from being stereotyped. 
it stops you from being pulled over. And that's all it is. White middle class struggle is real. White poor people struggle is real. But too many poor white people think the Donald Trumps of the world, the rich white people of the world are going to be their savior. They're not. Rich white people need you to be poor. They need you to work minimum wage jobs. Poor white people will be better off uniting with poor black people and poor Hispanic people and really trying to form groups that help themselves get out of poverty together. We have as much of a, a class war, if you want to call it, as a race war. And one more thing on this subject is, I believe it's people over 60 or 65 still own like 60, 70% of the, the net worth of this country. It's the older generation that we need to try to reach and ask them to care about these communities, care about Detroit, Milwaukee, um, all of these inner cities that black people were forced into, into housing projects. Michigan is a very large state. There's over 10 million people in Michigan. Why do over 60% of black people live in two places, Detroit and Flint? That is systemic racism. They're forced into two areas and given no resources and you wonder why black on black crime occurs. These are real life statistics, real life circumstances and environments. And from my experience of being in the comment section, white people just say they gotta make better decisions. They have to pull themselves up. Listen, white people didn't pull themselves up. We get jobs from our friends and family. Nepotism is very real. So if you have 110 million white males and only 20 million black males, guess what? Those white males give jobs to their friends and families and people that look like them. So we need to get the white voices and hope that they find something in their heart and they're willing to help. Yeah, and I'm not even really mad at that. I mean, as far as like tribalism and nepotism, it's something that we do by relation. So like you being from Rawway, and I don't even need to know you, but the moment you were wearing a Rawway Indian shirt, I'm automatically going to try to give you a discount at my store mm -hmm. or just try to relate to you on some form of level because we're from the same town. We have some type of re relatability. It's the same way it goes down with Italians and tracing back to their ancestors and in Sicily. They're going to ask you what, what part of Sicily is your family from? They may have never met that person, but there's some type of relationship there, whether it's, you know, within cousins or whether it's from generations ago. And in regards to how black on black crime works. I mean, I, you did bring up an excellent point about where majority of black people live in these places. It baffles me the obsession that when I go on TMZ.com and read the comment section and I see the location where they're located at, North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, and they're calling black people monkeys and talking about black on black crime. I'm like, bro, like you probably seen one black person in the last five years. Like, why do you care so much for? It really baffles me. And also on top of that, when it comes down to just your social economical situation, internationally speaking, it's not just a black issue. People in Manila, very poor, very high crime driven environments, whether you're in Bosnia or Kosovo, war driven countries, very high crime environments. Same thing goes with Brazil. Same thing goes with any place where there's high levels of poverty, you're going to see crime associated with it. You see more drug um, occurrences in trailer parks versus, well, actually, that's not even really accurate right now because now you're starting to see more drug overdoses in more affluent places. But it just goes to show that it's not a matter of your skin color 
that makes you inherently criminal. It is a matter of your socioeconomical situation. Well, you make a great point about the person from North Dakota making these judgments about black people without even having encountered any black people. But that's where we are because where do these people from North Dakota, Vermont, Maine see black people? They see them on the news. They see them in stories and the way that they're depicted. So the news that is shown in different states and different communities is another aspect that we can't even get into because we don't even see it. Because what stories are shown on the news in North Dakota or South Dakota and saying about how young black people are killing each other and they must be this way. That's why we can't be mad at those people whose views are formed by what they're shown. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Tucker Carlson is the most watched news person in the country. Fox News is the most watched news channel in the country. So how can we sit here and and be surprised by Donald Trump being in office? We're literally seeing the statistics that people watch Fox News. They soak in this rhetoric that Tucker Carlson puts out there that a 17-year-old illegally possessing a firearm is a national hero. And the direct comparison to that is Philando Castile was legally allowed to carry a firearm, but he didn't even get the chance to show the police officer that he was legally allowed. The fear within that police officer made him fire on instinct. Yeah, and the funny thing about it is that you talk about these don't tread on me people. Where was the NRA when Philando Castile was murdered? They were quiet as church mice. Yeah. So is it really about your Second Amendment right, or does it matter who has the right to carry these firearms? Everything is color first in this country. So if you're a firearm carrier and you're white, you have every privilege under the sun, and the NRA will back you. If you're a legal carrier and you're black, then there must have been more to the story. And that's just how all these stories just seem to be. There's Like me and you talked about offline is we just ask cops to have patience in these scenarios. It's easy to say and admit Jacob Blake didn't comply and he walked away or tried to run away from the officer. White people have done it. Black people have done it. It's the same thing with when you're reprimanding children. We give them patience. The problem in these scenarios is we see that there's a lot more patience given by police officers to white suspects or just white men in those scenarios than black men. And in Eric Garner's case, in George Floyd's case, in Philando Castile's case, now in Jacob Blake's case, it's just patience. It's just policy to come up with other ways to squash the situation than lethal force. And it seems pretty simple to try to get to that level, but it just has not. You don't affiliate yourself with like any party or particular state of mind. And the reason that you gave for that is because they're not doing right by black people or supporting black people. My question to you is, why is that something that you're passionate about? Why do you care about the treatment of black people? I care about the treatment of black people because in prisons, it's almost all black people. And when you get to know these people, they are much more than what is shown on the news or what the statistics try to tell you. I met so many young black kids from Newark, from Camden, from Patterson. I keep saying those three cities because they literally fill up all the prisons in New Jersey, and it's sad. These kids, and I call them kids because I was 18, they were 17, 18, 19, 20. They had so much potential, so much talent, so much intellect, and 
they were taught that why go in that direction and utilize that when it's easier just to join a gang and live a criminal lifestyle, sell drugs, make this money. And I know that they're not bad people. There's bad people in everything. We've seen it. It's 2020. We've seen bad priests. We've seen bad teachers, bad cops, bad presidents, bad everything. Black people get a bad name as if there's so many more bad apples in the black population. And it's just far from true. If we take every single black kid between the age of 13 and 21 out of the housing projects and put them in an affluent neighborhood in a good school district, and they don't have to worry about where they're finding their next meal, they will flourish. They will not commit crime. They're not inherently criminal. I'm so passionate about it because circumstances and environment dictate 95% of things. People deserve a chance. And when I say the Democratic Party and Republican Party, we need to elect Joe Biden, obviously, because the racial tension under, under Trump and his rhetoric is literally leading to the Kyle Rittenhouses of the world. But I'm very upset at Democrats because the day after the election in 2016, people like us looked around and said, how are we going to make it through these next four years? We have to plan now, make it through these next four years, and then things will be different. And the Democratic Party, they didn't do that. They gave us Joe Biden. They want us to elect the oldest president in the history of the country. And they must not have woke up after Election Day 2016 and said, we need to do better. We need to make sure we have a better candidate. Uh, because what is the four-year plan after Joe Biden? He's not going to be an eight-year president. He's too old. So who's that next young Democrat that is going to revitalize everything and bring race relations together? We need to destroy both parties and have six, 10, 20 parties because it really is designed like this from politics, presidential level, all the way down to inner city budgeting. It is designed to keep black people. And listen, I talk a lot about Native American population too, because they're just a population that obviously this land was taken from. And if you look at their prison incarceration rates out West and everything, they're as brutalized and systemically oppressed as black people. So I really am trying to find a way to unite all of these populations that need and deserve more, whether you want to call it reparations or anything else, it is deserved and it is needed. What I took from that, and I want to make sure we, we stay on the topic of, of politics in it, but like generally that just opens up a whole nother bag, right? And what I got from earlier point, it's almost like your mind was open and having the ability to kind of make direct connections with people, getting to know people on a personal level over, over the amount of time that you spent in the system. What are your thoughts on Black people before you entered the system? And do you think that you kind of got this enlightenment from you know, these hard circumstances. And how does that make you think about other people that aren't going to ever have that, that kind of direct connection because they don't live in a neighborhood that they, they get exposed to black people or whatever it might be? It was so funny because, you know, as we get older and we, we learn more and we reflect back, you can see things more clearly. But in the moment, as a 16, 17, 18 year old in Rawway High School, you don't notice that even black and white students are treated differently there. It wasn't until after I got out of prison at 27 years old and I ran into people I went to school with and I met, again, black kids that I went to school with, played football and basketball with all the time and learned that a few, they weren't even good at reading and writing. In further discussions with them, the way that we were taught in school and how some people are pushed through and they'll give you a passing grade 
but they don't care whether you really got any knowledge from it to where other students might have been given more correction, more attention. When I realized that, it really got to me. Listen, I grew up around almost all black kids playing football and basketball. We were all so cool that, and it happened even in prison too. I built such tight relationships that people were like, oh, you can use the N-word. Like, we're brothers, we're family. Never in my life have I ever used the N-word. Never. Because just consciously inside me, even from a young age, I'm like, I don't need to say that to you in order for us to be closer together. You know what I mean? And I never, I mean, not at least to my face, was told like, yo, you go too far to try to act black or this or that. I thought I was smooth. I thought I was cool. I wasn't a gangster, that's for sure. But literally from the age of six to I went to prison, I felt I did a good job. I had black friends, white friends. We tried to intermingle as much as possible. But even in a town like that, people are separate when they hang out outside of school. And I wish it wasn't like that. But those perspectives and just knowing that those white kids were doing as much drugs or getting in trouble as those black kids. And in our town, it wasn't even that much trouble. But just knowing that there's no difference. It didn't matter their race. The only difference was that if I was walking with a group of white kids home from school and they had weed on them, they didn't have to fear getting stopped for no reason. If I was walking with a group of black kids and they had weed on them, the cops stop them just because they're black. And that's even in a town like Rawway. I hope I answer your question. I, sometimes I go off rambling because I'm just passionate about human beings, people. And I get why people say all lives matter when they hear black lives matter. And that's why I'm so against these slogans. Black lives matter simply means that black people have never been treated equally in this country. And I don't know when, and I see it all the time in memes and everything else, people can establish a date and time of, that's the day black people were freed and they got treated equal. We got taught in high school that the Emancipation Proclamation made black people equal. And then as a 35 year old, I found out that after slaves were freed, then convict leasing began. And that's when they started arresting black people for no reason. And then after convict leasing went away, then the new Jim Crow happened. And then poll taxes and intelligence tests to votes. And I even learned that white women didn't want women to be able to vote because they didn't stand anything to gain from it. As white women, they were already good with their white husbands, which is why you see all these Karen videos going around and why so many white women aren't going out of their way to talk about race. This is something we could talk about for 12 hours and I yeah. wish we could, but. How was it like when you came to this realization? Because like even in high school, we were taught that Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. But when you do more research, no way in hell was Abraham Lincoln even this black loving person. Like he thought that maybe the smartest of black people deserve to get some type of citizen rights, but he didn't believe in the, in the equality uh, of, of black people. As a matter of fact, there was the, um, the Slave Removal Act, you know, for, or the Negro Removal Act. And he also promoted policies for black people to return to what is now the country of Liberia and Africa. But yet, you know, you see the Republicans, you know, calling themselves the party of Lincoln, you know, and putting out this disingenuous trod that the Republicans are the party of Lincoln and they're responsible for blacks being free and they're really anti-slavery and so on and so forth. But it's more political philosophy than an actual political party. Like one of the things you said is like those smart black people, 
it's why so many white people have the sentiments today that they feel like they can say, well, I have black friends. I have, you can have black friends and still be racist because you just consider those black friends to be different. Those that are smarter just didn't commit criminal acts. It already adds to your credibility because I've probably, and I think that Trevor and, uh, and Sam could relate to this as well. It's like, I go on Facebook now and always disappointed because I have people, white people who I consider to be my friends, right? And they've had much exposure to black people throughout the years. And they are saying some of the most ignorant things that I've ever seen. It's a major disappointment. And it's just like, what, what excuse do you have? Like you actually see the humanity. Like we've broke bread together. We've had dinner together. I've met your mother. I met your father. We've gone on vacations together. Yet you're putting out this rhetoric. Now, is it because we're doing better than you that you need to have some type of feeling that you're inherently better than me? I don't know. But some people are just, you know, never cease to amaze me and continue to disappoint me. And it, it's going to continue to be like that because those people, they look at you like, well, he's just one black guy. He made it out. He's different. And they literally group all other black people together from what they see on the news or social media. And like I told you, I just met hundreds, if not thousands of black people in prison that if they weren't born where they were born, if they weren't surrounded by certain influences they were surrounded by, they would have been just as successful as any white person that grew up in better neighborhoods and better areas, which is why one of the initiatives that I'm pushing for, and I told you I was disappointed in Shaq and Queen Latifah, because if you're building these luxury apartment units in Newark and you're only housing 20% or 30% lower income people, and people don't understand that even when they say housing these lower income people, they could be people from other cities. It doesn't have to be Newark. All housing projects that were born, I mean, built in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, when black people came from the South and they were promised more, they all need to be shut down. They all need to be just demolished and black people need to be allowed to move into these luxury apartment buildings we see going all up and down the East Coast Corridor. They're around every train station. They deserve that. But the problem is we have a Republican Senate majority leader who says, none of us were born during slavery years. We don't owe anybody anything. And white people today, like we said, white struggle is real. So when you have white people who are paying $10,000 in property taxes and student loans and everything else, and you tell them, we want to give black people reparations for everything they've been through, they throw their arms up in the air. You can't give people free stuff. You can't do this. I'm paying all this money. They don't have any sympathy or empathy that you being born in a five-bedroom house in Cranford and a kid being born in a single-room uh, housing project in Newark, neither one of you did anything to deserve that. You were just born into these circumstances. But I find far too many people, and Black people included nowadays, get met or say that it's their own fault that these kids being born into these circumstances, basically, it's their fault. Their father's in prison is their fault. Their mom was addicted to drugs is their fault. They'll believe any conspiracy theory under the sun that aligns with their narrative, but they won't believe that crack cocaine was introduced for a reason. They won't believe that black people were forced into these inner cities and all the white people left out. They don't believe in white flight. They don't believe in all white people leaving, banks closing, stores leaving, no resources happening. 
the communities being run down, and then gentrification happened. People will watch Netflix for days and believe every crazy-ass story they see on there, but when you say a pandemic is happening, they say the government made it up. So we live in a world where facts aren't real and people only believe what aligns with their philosophies, which makes me very scared for what the future holds because facts don't matter at all. You mentioned early before in, in so many words, like not to preach at white people, you know, not to harp that, you know, they're privileged. So how would the three of us better connect with those who are trying to convert? Like, is it even realistic that we'll even get them to open their minds? Like, what is the best approach to try to, I guess, convince them that white privilege is a real thing and that there are some disadvantages that come along with being born with a darker pigmentation in this world today? So I think for black people, black men like you, you have to go through other mediums. You have to, like a white person like myself, it's up to me to talk to my family and parents about white privilege, what it means and why you shouldn't look at black people in a way that you look at them. And the problem is not all black people have white connections, so to say, white friends or colleagues that will be willing to listen. Thankfully in 2020, there are a lot of young white millennials or you know people of other ethnicities that don't look at all black people like they're inherently criminal or bad people. So for me, I feel like you guys have to talk to allies that you know are allies and convince them that it's their moral obligation to talk to their 70-year-old grandmother with patience and say, Grandma, you grew up in a different time. It's perfectly fine that you have these racist tendencies or these racist feelings towards Black people. That's what you were taught. From two years old to 70 years old, that's what you learned. So I can't be upset at you for that, but let me show you these statistics. Let me show you the progress of 1619 when slaves came to 1865 that we learned in high school ended slavery and so on and so forth. The other thing I think is huge is that kids are taught history differently all over the country. Like I'm sure you guys saw a few years ago in McGraw textbooks in Texas, they didn't call black people slaves when they came over. They called them workers, which then allowed a lot of people, white people to have the mindset of 2020, I've heard white people say this, any black person living in this country should be thankful because without us, they would still be in Africa. These are things that white people go through their head. I see white kids on TikTok say, black people should be thankful we call them the N-word. Look, now they use it in their culture. Without us, they wouldn't even have that. And everybody comments and says, oh my God, where is that girl's parents? You know where they are? They're videoing her. Like, she learned it from somewhere. This is generations and generations of racism passed down, but I understand it. And I'm not mad at people for being like that. For me, I was 17 and, and somewhere in my mind thought it'd be a good idea to commit on robbery. I always ask people this, Sam, you go to an ice cream place right now. What ice cream are you going to get? Something like cookies and cream or something like that. Yeah. But for me, like I walk in and I'm like, damn, I want vanilla, strawberry, cookie dough. We don't make conscious decisions of what kind of ice cream we're going to eat. A lot of people don't make conscious decisions on a daily basis for how we feel, which is why, like, when I talk to people who are depressed or suicidal, never be mad at yourself for the thoughts that come in your brain. I had these thoughts that came into my, my brain at 17 years old to commit armed robbery. 
I wish I talked to somebody about it because they would have talked me out of it. You can never fault yourself for what you think in your brain. If you think about killing black people, killing white people, you didn't choose that that shit came in your brain. Talk to somebody about it. Seek therapy, seek a friend or family. Like me and Jeff talk about therapy is a wonderful thing. Do never be mad at yourself for the thoughts that come in your head, but just don't let them fester inside you because they will lead to bad decision-making. So Jeff, to answer your question specifically, you three getting through to white people directly today, I don't think that it's possible. The white people that don't want to listen, that is. The white people that want to listen, you have to convince that 27-year-old white girl, that 32-year-old white guy to talk to his grandparents, talk to his parents and say, mom, dad, all our lives, we thought black people were bad. They're really not. They just didn't grow up in Short Hills, New Jersey. They grew up in Camden. And we get a lot more benefits than they get down there. Maybe since we're millionaires, we can go help change that situation. You mentioned something in regards to just like, I was told before, rather recently, that I should not necessarily be mad at white races because white people, and I'm generalizing, obviously, are conditioned that they're the default from Santa Claus to Superman and Batman. Everything cool as a child is white. Jesus Christ, the way he's patrolled in in our culture right now is white. The color Band-Aid that you put on your flesh when you cut yourself is white. When you're buying nude mascara or lipstick or pantyhose, it's made for a white person. Even if you lose a limb, your your, uh, artificial limb is going to be of a white complexion. The anatomy drawing of of the guy with his arms out, his legs spread, you know, that diaphragm of the human body is white. Angels are white. Angels Fuki, white. <laughs> I can go on and on. Black male, you know, black lies, white lies. So if you're a white person and this is the type of world you come into, like how could you not feel like you're the default and everything else is abnormal? It's going to take a lot of uneducating yourself and exposing yourself to a different set of circumstances and new information for you to even consider. And it's not going to be done during the course of a podcast or to watching Rachel Maddow, or even reading a book about white rage or white fragility. Like it takes years of conversations and years of development and years of hard work. And we're not going to really touch everybody in this lifetime. But we have to be also very patient with the fact that as a society, we're going in a better direction. The timeline of the earth is really long. The time that we live on here is just a blip. So 50 years ago, less than half of the population probably had access to real electricity. Much of the population didn't have access to running water or toilets that flush. In 50, 60 years, that has changed a great deal. Childhood mortality has changed a great deal. The amount of famine has decreased. The amount of murders, believe it or not, has decreased. So we have to be able to see world and life as much more than what we are currently living right now, that we're actually putting in good work for not just our children, but our great, 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 great grandchildren you know, 150 years from now. And we have to be okay with that. Except for climate change. (laughs) I love that you use the word educated because I hear that as the answer to everything. Like people just got to get educated. Once we get people educated, then everything will be better. I don't even know what that means. Like I know people with masters and PhDs and doctorates and they say the most racist things I've ever heard. So everybody's education is different. So it's not education that we need. It's empathy. It's sympathy. It's like, 
really giving time to learn about these things. You asked how it was phrased, but I've given time to research that slavery didn't end in 1865. I've given time to research that Black people were still discriminated against getting mortgages in the 90s. We just talked earlier about how Black families are convinced to sell their homes for cheaper than white families or uh, appraisal rates are higher for whites than Blacks. These are systemic racist issues that in 2020 still carry on. I one time shared that there are more black males in prison than there are that live in 32 states combined. I didn't think it was true. I had to double check, triple check. Yo, you posted that. Yeah. And that blew my mind. Like I I had to double check that myself. I thought that was like a a gross exaggeration. And it's sadly true. It might even be more than that, honestly. It might be. But anytime I provide statistics like that, I try to lowball it as much as possible because it's still jarring. That's why like states like Wisconsin, these things go on because I think the black population of Wisconsin is like 6%, 7%, obviously more black people in prison. Only six or 7% of the population is black, but the University of Wisconsin, there's less than 3% students that are black. Now, the thing with disproportionate numbers of people across the country is if the United States African-American population is 14%, then we should have 14% policemen that are black, 14% this that are black, but it's not like that. The only proportions of black people having the majority are in prison, probation, and parole. And it's not because they're inherently criminal, it's because those systems are designed to lock black people up and make money off of them. Our boy Alex is definitely dropping some knowledge over here, like definitely talking about some crazy numbers that unfortunately like are real in this world. So the fact that Black people, we are 14% of what the U.S. is, but the only way, you know, equal 14% everywhere else. And where we are, like, disproportionately more of a percentage is in prison. And the fact that all these crazy things that are still happening, like redlining or the fact that our homes are being under appraised and all, all these crazy things continue to happen. And people wonder why we're out here in the streets and we're protesting and all that, right? Like that ultimately, like we know that we've never had like the same kind of privileges that were promised to people in the country, you know, since the time of like the forefathers. So best of like love to like Alex for coming out today and definitely a lot of good stuff to kind of chew on. Alex, if you want to be able to say your goodbyes, say your goodbyes, bro. I appreciate it. And let me just say one more thing. I think it says even more about you because I know people this age that they still hate people for what happened in high school. They don't even give them a chance. And like we talk about, you're a different person at 16, at 20, at 25, at 35. And to know people who, who recently even say to me, like, oh my God, I hated them in high school. I would never talk to them. And then you, someone like, it was up to you to forgive me for the action. So it says about, a lot about who you are and reaching out to me and appreciating my journey because I appreciate your journey and who you are and who I see you to be on this platform and other platforms. So I'm definitely hoping we can do a lot more things together and really try to affect positive change.
Shout out to Alex for blessing us. Now kind of back in the present tense. I want to continue those shout outs, man. It's been a great day. As of this recording, we're recording this on the very same day that the governor of New Jersey has actually signed into effect, marking Juneteenth as an official state holiday. So I want to make sure we give a shout out to Governor Murphy, who's been doing a bang up job, man, and making sure that the state of New Jersey is safe and all that's going on and with the craziness of coronavirus. I know he's got a lot of folks that are criticizing and, and hating on him, man, but like in terms of keeping family safe out here and in terms of like pushing forward on the real issues, man, I don't know if we could have asked for a better job given the circumstances, man. So I definitely want to want to give him his flowers today. For real, we're from Jersey and uh, definitely shout out to our governor, Governor Phil Murphy. I'm going to do a shout out to people with a platform um, who still have integrity. You have trolling rapper Takashi69, who has been doing a massive press run trying to promote his new album called Tattletale, and he flopped. He sold anywhere between 40 to 50,000 copies, and he was supposed to sell a lot more than that. Throughout this past week, he's been begging people for interviews, people who could have benefited a great deal from the views and the audience that he would have brought to them, and they said no. Takashi 69 is not a good person, not just because he cooperated with the feds. I mean, you can feel how you want to feel about that, but he is a abuser. Um, he's just not a good person. So shout out to all the people who still have journalistic integrity these days who won't just give anybody a platform. Shout out to y'all. That was a good way to close it out, Jeff. I'm going to piggyback both of y'all on, you know, Phil Murphy. Shout out to him for, we're in New Jersey, right? So ultimately, gyms have finally opened back up, movie theaters. So it's good to kind of start peeling back the layers and having those things again. So shout out to being able to like live and do stuff again. But I also wanted to shout out Madden. So Madden this week said that they're going to put Colin Kaepernick back in their game for the first time since the end of the 2016 season. So shout out to them. You know, just like right now, Colin Kaepernick is still technically a free agent. So he's someone that you can pick up in your free agent pool, which is still a shame that he doesn't, you know, out of the nearly 100 quarterback jobs in the NFL, he can't have one. But shout out to them for putting him back on their rosters and, you know, definitely some for those of you video game heads that, that love Madden, like, you can have Colin Kaepernick on your team. Word, man. I've been uh, slow to crack open Madden this year, man. But it's definitely on my to-do list now that Kaepernick's officially back in the game. EA still Sports. Better. It's still it's better than that Cam Newton. I mean, that's not saying much. We can, we can talk about Cam another day, man. His hats and his uh, and his scarves are, are probably popping a little bit more than his stats. But anyway, man, as always, man, thank you all for riding with us for another episode. As always, we remind you guys to go ahead and hit that like, subscribe, follow button in your favorite podcast app to make sure you get those episodes delivered fresh to your podcast feeds every Monday when we drop. In between time, make sure you take the time to uh, hit that follow button, man. FR the podcast on social media. Let us know what you think. Hit us up. I want to give a special shout out to Garna Kia who hit us up on Instagram the other day. Let us know that she's been listening with her 16-year-old son, man. So I'll do my best to make sure that uh, that Jeff cleans up his language going forward now that we got kids listening. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, man, we appreciate you guys for rocking with us. Until next week, man. Peace. <laughs>